Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry laughing at me. And uh, this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. That was welcome, one, friends. That was one of the best false starts we've ever had. It, had, it was like four <laughs> in one. Yeah, it was weird. Jerry hit record and Josh went, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> that was, was a like, false start. You've got to welcome people to the podcast. I forgot. Uh, hey. Hey, man. Your shirt is taking me back, man. Oh, yeah? It's taking me back to July 20th, 1969. Exactly five years and 360 days before my birth. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I just calculated that really quickly. Yeah, that was pre-Chuck as well, believe it or not. No. Yeah, you know, I was born in the 70s. I know. Was it 70 or 71? 71. Nice. It's a nice round number, 71. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember all the space race stuff, though, from being young. Yeah, I remember. the, The tail end, obviously. For sure. Well, we'd already won when I was around. Yeah, we'd kind of already won since I was around, but it was still like a big deal. It's still doing the victory laps. (laughs) Basically. Yeah. When I was around, it was space shuttle, space shuttle, space shuttle. And as an adult, I've now seen two of the space shuttles in person. Uh, Launches or just like in the hangar? Decommissioned ones in the hangar. That's pretty cool. Those things are huge. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, they're really neat. I've never seen one. You definitely should. There's one at the new Air and Space Museum at Dulles Airport. Okay. I think that's Enterprise, maybe, or Endeavor. And then um, you can also see one at Cape Canaveral, Kennedy Space Center, which I highly recommend to anyone who's even remotely interested in space, yeah, space exploration, or the history of space. Kennedy is the place to go. It is awesome. I've been to and can recommend the uh, Naval Air Station Museum in Pensacola, Florida. Okay. And I've been to Huntsville. But never Have you been, been to Space Camp? No. Oh, uh, man. But that's where Space Camp is, right, Huntsville? I th- I think so. I don't know if it's... So uh, did you just like, sit outside the chain so link bad. fence and look inside? <laughs> yeah, that movie... And all the privileged kids who got to go? That movie was big. I never me. saw it. Yeah, I mean, I, I was at the right age where a movie about kids in space was kind of perfect. So what what's at Huntsville, then? Is it like just the... the um, that's like the rocket place. That's where they did the, the original stuff, right? Uh, I think... Huntsville's before Kennedy. We should know this stuff. I think it was in conjunction with it, if not before it. But yes. So it was a space center. And I think it still is. Marshall is in Huntsville. It's getting off to a great start. Anyway, (laughs) you like space. I like space. We're not like space junkies or anything like that. We don't like intravenously inject space. No, like Tom Hanks. Right. Uh, You know, we never produced a miniseries about it or anything like that. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. I think, after researching how the space race worked, it occurred to me that there's at least two other episodes that we should do. How the moon landing worked. We yeah. already did, did they fake the moon landing? Yeah. Which was a pretty good one. Yeah, that's old. But we should do one, like, assuming that it actually happened. <laughs> which it did. And then uh, the International Space Station, or just yeah. space stations in general, like the history of them, like Skylab yeah, and yeah. Mir, Mir and, you know, the we ISS. Totally should. Okay, so we'll do those, people. We have committed ourselves, like John Kennedy committed America to put a man on the moon by the end of the 60s. So we're uh, going to do our uh, podcasts nice. on space stations. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, you took me back to July 20th, 1969. Yeah. So let's take everybody back. Do you want to get in the Wayback Machine? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Blow the dust off this thing. 
did you leave like a half-eaten cheeseburger in here or something? It is funky. Yeah. I thought that might keep. It's not keeping <laughs> very well. Sorry. There's a mongoose in here. We can just go back in time to when that burger was fresh. Oh, good thinking. <laughs> Will you share it with me? You obviously only wanted half. Well, that's why we all know we're kidding, because Chuck didn't leave behind a half a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> that's silly. Okay, so Chuck, uh, here we are, I assume. This is, yeah, it's July 20th, 1969. Sweet. And we're going to listen in as you and I do a dramatic reading of the transmission between Mission Control and the Lunar Landing Module. I'll be Mission Control. And I'll be Eagle. Okay. 30 seconds. Uh, in parentheses, of fuel remaining. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. Descent engine command. Override off. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. Woo! It's Miller time. Yeah, it is. We're all wearing short sleeve shirts with ties. Uh, we're all, uh, cool under pressure. We got flat tops. And a lot of people don't know. I didn't know, actually, until I read this, that when the, uh, landing module for Apollo 11, yeah. the first time humans set foot on the moon that we know of, um, the, there was a really tense moment where they were about to run out of fuel as they were trying to land. Yeah. That's what that 30 seconds thing was from. And had they run out of fuel, all three or all two astronauts aboard who landed would have died. Yeah, I mean, they basically had to uh, do it manually. Yeah, they, they took over. That's why they had, as Tom Wolfe put it, the right stuff. Great, great book. Great, great movie. I've never read the book, but uh, the movie is amazing. So good. If if you're out there and, well, if you're a fan of space, then you've seen the right stuff. That just reminded me. Remember when I told you about Garbage Pail Stew? Yeah. So I guess it must have been for my dad's birthday or something. My family rented the right stuff, and we made garbage pail stew. Oh, that was part of the thing? Yeah. Every year? No, just oh, okay. once. just once. Yeah, yeah. We oh. didn't like my dad that much. Yeah, we got a, a listener mail from someone in Michigan that did the garbage uh, can. Awesome. Yeah. I did not see that one. So I it must have been it. a uh, Midwestern thing. Okay, good. So I'm not insane, and neither is my father. No, but see the right stuff, people. Really, really great movie. It is. It encapsulates the Mercury program in... The Mercury 7, and uh, plus uh, Levon Helm is in it. Is that right? Yeah, the did, late great. Did, who did he play? He was he was not one of the Mercury 7. He was... Uh, he, he got cut? You're cut? No, I don't think he was even an astronaut in training. I think he was just part of the uh, support military crew. I can't remember exactly. It's been a while. Yeah, that's an odd cameo. No, it wasn't a cameo. He, it was a genuine part. Right, but I mean, like, why Levon Helm? He, he acts... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was in Coal Miner's Daughter and uh, oh, really? stuff, and uh, he was in that Marky Mark movie a few, couple of years ago. Shooter, what? shooter, shooter, sniper. One of these is a sniper. Okay. Are we, are we done? Yeah. R.I.P. Man, we got way <laughs> off. Anyway, when uh, Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, Buzz Aldrin was close on his heels. Uh, that ended effectively a uh, more than a decade of what was known as the space race. Yeah, very exciting time in the United States. Yeah. People were way way into it. Yeah, it was it it was like um people cared. Yeah, it was like how the voice is viewed now. <laughs> oh boy, that's sad. You know? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I never seen that show. 
lie. If it really happens. <laughs> nice one. <laughs> so the the space race was this kind of this, we should define it. It was this Cold War uh, byproduct yeah. of the tensions between the U.S. and the USSR, yeah. which were competing for utter dominance in uh, over the world, one way or another. Yeah. And um, out of that quest for dominance came a, uh, a, a an uneasy balance, a polarization, and you're either with one side or against them. There was very few neutral states. Yeah. Uh, and from this came kind of a uh, just a constant challenge. It was uh, each country drove the other to try to advance technologically, yeah. economically, um, in, in just every single way. And it was kind of a really fruitful time, especially if you are into the whole military-industrial complex gig. <laughs> yeah. But from from this competition, we reached the moon. The Soviets ended up building the Mir space station. Yeah. Like, everything we know about space came out of this race, this tension between the U.S. and the USSR. Yeah, and it was it's pretty neat. Like, the early space programs were, it was all brand new. So it wasn't like, uh, let's see how much work we can get done up there. It was... Let's see if we can get up there. Let's see if this guy won't die if we shoot him up there. Yeah, and it was like logical steps. Like, can we put a ship up there? Can we put a ship with a chimp? Can we put a ship with a human? Yeah. Can we put two humans? How long can they stay? Right. Can they dock with other ships and meet other astronauts? Can we actually trick them into drinking tanks? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then eventually, uh, we feel like we can get up there. Now we need to start uh, accomplishing some things besides just getting up here. That's right. I mean, they brought back lunar rocks and things. Don't get me wrong. They had goals. Aside from hitting a golf ball on the moon, <laughs> right? But um, I just find it really remarkable that it's illogical that it was all just a series of steps, and each time we tried to one up one another, it was progress for the world. Yeah, exactly for mankind. Yeah, if you will. and it's really difficult to overstate the effect that that rivalry had. I mean, we'll kind of see that you know, if one achieves something, the other one was like, ah, we've got to top you somehow by tenfold. Yeah, you, you know? send the man, we send the woman. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. That was a good one. Like it was a, a lot of, everyone was trying to get a first in there. Exactly. I thought you were doing Sean Connery doing the... Um, you, Hunt for Red October? No, they bring a, a knife. Oh. You bring a gun. <laughs> no. If you thought that was my Irish accent, then I'm worse than I thought. I, maybe I just am not hearing right. Okay. So uh, the the space race put us into space. Everything we now understand and know and have... Uh, in space and a lot of stuff on Earth is directly related to the space race. And the space race, we trace back to the Nazis. Yeah. It, it's funny. The space race was between the U.S. and Russia, but it was really Germany. Yeah. That kind of started everything. During World War II, Nazi Germany had a world-class rocket program led by a guy named Werner von Braun. Yeah. And von Braun, um, at some point during World War II... I guess saw the writing on the wall. He came up with the V2 rocket, which was the scourge of Britain. Yeah, it's uh, it was the first ballistic missile, and uh, ballistic missile means it's not steered. It's fired on a trajectory, and then just regular forces of nature and mechanics run the show. Right. As opposed to a cruise missile, which is steered. But it could it could hit London from like a, a launch pad around the Baltic Sea. 
If they did their calculations correct. Right. Yes. So von Braun had developed the V-2 rocket. And at some point during World War II, I guess he saw the writing on the wall that he, and he lost faith that the Germans were going to win. So he got together some of his fellow rocket scientists, literal rocket scientists, yeah, uh, and said, hey, let's surrender to the Americans. I'll bet you if we come to them and bring some knowledge and schematics and stuff. Yeah. That they'll just totally ignore the whole Nazi thing. And they were right. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Uh, and Hitler pouted and um, died. Yes. And then we uh, got these dudes, Van Braun in particular, and took them to White Sands, New Mexico, and said, you now work for us. And they said, great, because you guys got better food and cool cars and, yeah. and hot women. Yes. <laughs> there's like... Everything you need in New Mexico, land of, <laughs> land of plenty. Uh, you ever been to White Sands? No, I haven't. It's pretty cool. Van Nostrum went, or no, he went to the Trinity testing site. It's oh, really? not White Sands. No, I don't think so. No. Um, so White, White Sands relocated to Huntsville, though, at Marshall. Right. Yes. So I was right by calling it Marshall. Yes, Marshall Space Flight Center. So the Soviets did the same thing. They poached a bunch of Nazi rocket scientists and created their own program under the um, leadership of a very talented and apt Russian named Sergei Korolev. Yeah. And so basically it was von Braun versus Korolev, teams of Nazi scientists working in the USSR yeah. and the USA, working with, obviously, American colleagues, Soviet colleagues. And Germany was like, what about our space program? They're, they were like, w- you're lucky we even let you have a flag right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was the start of the space race. And, uh, that's that's uh, incorrect. There was a program developed, a rocket program developed, another rocket program developed. And at the time, both of these nascent U.S. and Soviet rocket programs, yeah, they were designed to blow each other up. But yeah. at some point, the scientists said, hey, how about rather than pointing them over Earth, how about a, up? Let's shoot these things up and see what we can do. Yes. Uh, like maybe carry a satellite into, into outer space. space. Uh, Eisenhower, and this is jumping ahead a little bit, he also had the foresight to say, you know what? Uh, space is fun and all, but we can use this for military purposes. So he started a couple of... Uh, national security programs, one for the military potential of using these rockets, and the other one with the CIA to say it was called the the National Reconnaissance Office, and that was secret until the 90s. Yeah, is it still around? Uh, I don't think so. It's codenamed Corona. And um, that was Eisenhower saying, well, if we can get satellites up there, maybe we can start spying on the Russians mm-hmm. with these satellites. So there was, I was kind of surprised to learn that intelligence was... Uh, behind some of this that early on. Oh, yeah? Yeah. So uh, the beginning, uh, let's call 1957, uh, it was the International Geophysical Year, and that was when a bunch of scientists got together and said, hey, let's get together from all over the world and let's all do some, put our heads together to yeah. do some like serious studying of our planet. Isn't that neat? Yeah, it's super neat. They said, okay, well, like we've got these governments, these incredibly powerful governments behind us let's see if we can use it for some good like yes we'll create their spy satellites and whatnot but let's also see if we can funnel some of that funding toward space exploration yeah putting satellites into orbit let's see what we can do and they did and as a as a result both the united states and the ussr as a result of this international uh geophysical year yeah um 
said, we're going to be the first to launch a satellite into orbit. And the race was on. That was the beginning. What was that, 1957? That's right. And one thing is clear, if you know anything about the space race, is that the U.S. was getting their butts kicked in the early part of that game. Yeah. Like, if this is a four-quarter game, I would say the first, at the halftime, they were probably losing. About the half. Somewhere in the half. They started to come back and maybe change momentum around the half. Okay, so like they, they had definitely a- <laughs> lost all of the first quarter. Okay, but if this is basketball, they had a run late in the second quarter, maybe to yeah. get the fans fired up. Yes, okay, exactly. <laughs> uh, the Soviets definitely start, were winning early, though, um, with their Sputnik One, which means traveler in Russian, and they launched that on October fourth, nineteen fifty-seven. So they were the first ones to launch a satellite into space. That's right. They, uh, they scored that first point. They did. It was it, a big one. Well, it was a big one. They had a. They seem to want to do things a little more robustly than Americans. Mm-hmm. Americans seem to be a little more conservative, like with how many rockets can we put on? How fast can it go? How mm-hmm. what should the payload be? Right. And the Russians were pushing the boundaries a little, or sorry, the Soviets. Um, but they were Russian. Yeah, Ruskies. Yeah. Um, but they they had a payload much larger than than the Americans were willing to try. Right. But we weren't too far behind. Um, about four months later, on January thirty first, nineteen fifty eight, we launched. Uh, launched our Explorer one. Right. And actually, uh, we launched Explorer, which is finally attached to a um, Juno rocket, which was Von Braun's design. And the reason we didn't launch one first was because, for some reason, America had decided to go with a different rocket design and ignored Von Braun's. Oh, really? Yeah. And space experts, historians say we most likely would have gotten one up there before the Soviets had we just stuck with Von Braun's design. Because it would have been ready earlier, and it proved that it could have worked. So we could have beaten them, but we didn't. And that's actually the first point scored by the Soviets. So after that, it was like, okay, well, what's next? What's the next logical step from there? Start NASA. Yeah. (laughs) I guess so. We need a bureaucracy here. Yeah. In 1958, uh, Congress passed the Space Act, and that's what created NASA. And the Soviets created their space program. Roscosmos. And said... Let's do this uh, in earnest. <laughs> Let's do this. And it's pretty interesting when uh, we're going to go over some of the differences here. It's interesting to see this early, some of the different approaches, just some of the basic approaches to what each uh, nation thought was like the way to, the way to go. Yeah. Um, so here's one of them. The Soviet rockets, like I said, were more powerful. Mm-hmm. So right off the bat, they were using more juice. Right. The Soviets were using uh, what are called Vostok rockets yeah. early on in the beginning of their program. Uh, and uh, the Americans were using Redstone and Atlas rockets. Yeah. And this is when we started the Mercury program, like we referenced in The Right Stuff. Right. Uh, the Mercury 7, Scott Carpenter, Heroes, Gordo Cooper, John Glenn, Gus Grissom, uh, Wally Shira, Alan Shepard, and Deke Slayton. Those were some brave, like... They they would be the guys today that are wearing like those wingsuits and jumping off mountains. Yeah, you know, they they were the early uh, uh, what do you what do you call those thrill seekers? What's the word for them? Thrill seeker. Okay, early thrill seekers. No extreme. That's what I was looking for. Oh, Mountain Dew. <laughs> Code Red. Mountain Dew. Uh, one. So, go ahead. So I was going to say uh, you you can kind of like um, the programs were uh, were started and finished roughly at around the same time. Yeah. So you have the Mercury program going on in America initially, and at the same time, the Soviets are carrying out their Vostok program. Vostok. 
Okay. So another difference is that the Soviets were like uh, everything that they did, super secret about it all. And mm-hmm. it was tough to, you know, you couldn't turn on the TV and get a lot of information about uh, the cosmonaut of the month. Um, Which, by the way, I was like, how do you pronounce that in Russian? And apparently it's very close. It's cosmonaut. Oh, really? Yeah. Noft? There's an F. Huh. Noft. Well, you know, I, looked it sounds up, Russian. I, I was curious about the word not as a suffix. Mm-hmm. And apparently that came from uh, the Greek. For sailor. Yeah, like nautical. So they're they're space sailors, essentially. Don't you think it would radically alter our view of space and the International Space Station and everything if everyone were called cosmonauts or astronauts? If they you basically took away any kind of national or ethnic identity once you got out in space, like everybody was an astronaut? Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say if they use... Sailor instead of not, and it was <laughs> astro sailor, cosmo sailor. Or everybody was a dream sailor once you got <laughs> on this space. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, I think that's like naming your teams. It is because, like, even now, China yeah. sends taiko knots in there yeah. into space. So you can say just just by reading a news report, you know who's up there. Yeah, there's a taiko knot, a cosmonaut, and an astronaut. Well, yeah, you're totally right. That's no accident. No, um, so divisive. It is. Well, it was a space race. Yeah. Not a shuttle relay. It's true. Um, and not space shuttle, you know what I mean? I knew what you meant. Okay. I'm sure most people out there did. I hope so. So um, the Soviets were secret. The Americans were not. Uh, we proudly broadcasted our successes and failures for the world to see. And there were some failures. There were. We should say that when the USSR launched Sputnik, um, we had not one, but two major failures. Yeah. The, the kind where uh, the rocket will go up and then just come right back down and explode on the launch pad kind of failures. And they were dubbed things like Flopnik and Kaputnik. And it was very demoralizing for America. Yeah, or uh, a pre-launch test catching fire yeah. and losing three of our astronauts, including Gus Grissom. Well, that was the beginning of the Apollo program. Yeah, but that one didn't even, that was that was on the launch pad. That was a test. I don't, was that televised? I don't know about that. But they still don't know what caused the actual fire. But um, the 100% oxygen yeah. uh, chamber did not help. No, they used to they used to pump 100% oxygen rather than an air mixture. I think now it's like 34% aboard like the ISS. But they would they would have 100% oxygen, and it was extremely flammable. Yeah. And yeah, on during a test, I think in January of 1967. Um, the, the capsule caught fire and killed all three, uh, astronauts inside. It, within like five minutes, the fire burned itself out and they were dead. Wow. Luckily, they supposedly died from smoke inhalation, but. Which is what? Quicker? Yeah. Like they were dead like before burning they were to flamed. death. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, I don't know. Well, and the Soviets were the actual, the first ones to learn that pure oxygen wasn't a good idea. And they didn't tell us that. No. <laughs> obviously. No, because their program was in secret. Yeah. Uh, one of the other differences I thought was pretty interesting was that the Soviets um, used a spherical capsule uh, in which the cosmonaut just rode along and they uh, ejected and parachuted out and the capsule crashed onto land, whereas we had our, our funny-shaped capsule that the astronauts actually drove. So they were pilots, and they splashed down into the sea still in the capsule. Right. So, again... Two completely different approaches, and I just find it interesting that, you know, the Americans are like, no, we want our pilots to fly and fly into the ocean. 
because it's a soft place to land. Right. And, it, you know, it worked. Didn't somebody, I think one of those guys, Jeff Bezos or somebody like that, found uh, one of the original mercury capsules at the bottom of the ocean. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that neat? I saw that pictures of it underwater. Well, the benefits of a spherical spacecraft is it can enter the atmosphere just however it wants to. Right. Whereas you got to kind of nail that with the uh, with the mercury capsule. It's yeah. Conical. You couldn't just go in there like upside down. Yeah, you have to use your boosters to thrust into place and just your yaw and all that stuff. Real pilots, dude. Yeah. Well, it's like Apollo thirteen. That was one of their big concerns was being accurately. Uh, angled to re-enter yeah. the atmosphere, or else they were in big trouble. That's scary. That was such a good movie, too. Yeah, that was good. The Vomit Comet. Yeah. You remember that? That's what they use for... To train. And to shoot. That's how they simulated oh, did they? gravity. Yeah. Those poor guys. Yeah. I'd, I'd still love to ride on that thing. I bet it's awesome. Have you ever seen that footage of those girls like on the Vomit Comet or something similar? Girls? Yeah, there's three girls in the seat, and one of them throws up, and it just goes right back into her face and just kind of hovers there. Uh Have you not seen that? No. I got to send that to you. Is it real? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, what it is gross. What are they doing putting girls in the vomit comment? They like, what? No, I mean, not like seven-year-old girls. I oh, mean, women. Women. Oh, okay. We heard from our feminist <laughs> listeners, and they said girls is better than females. They yeah. said girls is acceptable. I'm just going with that. No, no, no. I'm still amazed that people just say female if they're not talking about like a, a study or something. You know, like, I've been listening out for that. over there. Does anyone say that? It's actually very, very common. Really? Female, male. Yeah. Interesting. It's very common. You've done your own... Uh, An impromptu <laughs> <Yeah>. survey. <laughs> just by being alive, man. Being awake. Yeah, no, and it wasn't like the vomit comment. Like, I don't think it was the one that like Ron Howard wrote on. It was a ride at Disney. It's basically, it looks a lot like a, a light aircraft that's doing a nosedive, but they're, they're basically weightless for a second. Wow. So it's obviously not a, a light aircraft, but it just looks small. But that girl just pukes in her own face. It is so gross. All right. So just to clear it up, Chuck wasn't saying that women should not be allowed in vomit comments. <laughs> And Josh wasn't saying that the women in the vomit comments were seven-year-olds. Right. Okay. I think that, that was well put. Thank you. So the Soviets scored the second point as well, second touchdown, if this you will. This is a big one. April 12, 1961, they actually put cosmonaut uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, into space. And he was the first man in space and the first man to orbit the Earth. And uh, that was egg on the face of the U.S. at that point. Yeah. We were they- down 14 nothing. Yeah, I think if you could like give them a couple of touchdowns for that one, you should. Twenty-one nothing. Yeah, All I right. mean, like Yuri was the first person in space, and again, apparently, America could have been the first, but it's actually better that um, I guess von Braun said we need to schedule one more test. I'm not 100 percent right. certain about putting a human in here. Yeah, and um, they they. They added one more test, which pushed Alan Shepard's Freedom 7 flight back by a couple of months, which put it a month after Yuri Gagarin's flight, right? Yeah. So we could have done it, but even if we had, the Russians still would have basically beaten us. 
they would have gotten at least some points, even for being second, because Alan Shepard's flight was basically shot up into a suborbital position yeah. and came right back down. It was a 15-minute suborbital space flight. Which you so can do now if you've got like a hundred grand. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, what Yuri Gagarin did was he, sh- he shot up into actual Earth orbit and orbited the Earth, the entire Earth once, yeah, and then came back down 108 minutes later. So 15 minutes. That's definitely two touchdowns. Yeah, straight up and down in 15 minutes, or up full orbit of the Earth and back down 108 minutes. I mean, it's actually good that we came second in that anyway. Yeah, true. And that, Chuck, that lit the fire beneath America's bottom. Yeah, like we got to get going. Yeah, because think about it. I mean, like we're the, down three touchdowns. Who wrote this one? Craig Freudenrich. Yeah, the doc. Right. He points out like this is the time of the this followed the McCarthy trials. Yeah. Um. The the people did not like the Soviets. America really wanted to dominate, and we were getting our butts kicked publicly. Yeah. By the USSR. Yeah. And it was demoralizing. But rather than let ourselves get beat down, Kennedy got with NASA and said, what can we do to beat these guys? That's right. Because not only with those two things were they beating us, but they, at one point during uh, this time, had more hours in space, uh, this one rocket, than all of ours put together. Yeah. So we were getting trounced. Bad. So they were basically just doing, like, victory lap after victory lap. Like, they would send guys up and, and orbit the Earth one after the other. Yeah, at the end of the um, the Vostok uh, program, yeah. which was their first program, I believe. Yes, their first program. By the time they finished it, they had not only sent the first man into space, they sent the, wo- the first woman into space, uh, Valentina Tereshkova. And she orbited the Earth 48 times in Vostok 6. Yeah. During the Mercury program, I think the best we came up with was Gordon Cooper doing 22 times around the Earth. So they were just crushing us. Yeah. Um, and just racking up the points left and right. That's right. So America says, you know what? Uh, we should develop something, a new program. And that's how it works. You know, they have a program. It does what it does over a period of years. Then they retire that. Mm-hmm. They start up a new one. The, the new program was the Gemini program. And the Soviets started the... Uh, Voskhod program. That's a tough one. A little bit. And they, again, got out to a little early lead with that program because they were the first to send multiple cosmonauts up. Yeah. They sent three into Voskhod 1 and then had a spacewalk before we did. Uh, Alexei Leonov in Voskhod 2, March 18th, 1965. So they're still, they're still beating us at this point. They are. But by this time... Just a couple of weeks after Alan Shepard's first flight, and while we're still just reeling from the uh, the the Yuri Gagarin flight, um, Kennedy came out on the news and said, "You know what? We're going to be the first to put a man on the moon, and we're going to do it before the decade's out." He kind of declared that the finish line, almost. Yeah. Too, like whoever does this, and it's going to be us. Uh, will win. And this is a substantial goal to set. I mean, like, oh, yeah. we've been beaten twice, and like you said, trounced um, by the Soviets, and now we're suddenly saying, like, oh, yeah, let's go to the moon. Let's see who's first to the moon. And uh, that 
set the foundation for everything to follow. That began the Gemini program, which, like you were saying, the Mercury program, each program was designed to kind of prove that we could do a certain yeah. step. Yeah. The Mercury program proved that a human being could go into space and safely come back down, yeah. could orbit the Earth. These next two programs, I guess the next Soviet program, what is it again? Uh, yeah. That one proved that a person could survive out in space, outside of a space capsule or space transport. Yeah. Um, and the Americans had Gemini, which ultimately bridged the gap between Mercury program and the Apollo program, which would put us on the moon. Yeah. And both the Vokshad and the, uh, Gemini programs were like putting multiple people in space together to work and do neat stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, uh, so with Jim and I early on, we were like, uh, all right, you guys are beating us to the punch. You're getting people up there and you can fly around the earth a bunch of times. You got the qu- quantity part down. Right. But we're going to focus on quality here in the U.S. <laughs> and learn how to do things up there, like change orbits. Can you do that, Rusky? Yeah. And they said, yet. And so all of a sudden we were flying around up there, changing orbits, Um Rendezvousing with other spacecraft, mm-hmm. docking with rockets, yeah, and they said, you can fly around the Earth as much as you want, but we're actually putting uh, putting our work into practice. Like, you know, what's it going to take to get on the moon? Mm-hmm. Send someone up there for two weeks and dock with someone else, right? Change orbits, fly that thing around, yeah. And we were able to do that successfully, and that's when we started pulling ahead. Because the Soviets were just doing laps around the Earth. Well, they they were doing some other stuff. They did do like spacewalks and stuff like that. But no, yeah, of course, it was these two programs are are where we started to pull away, and um, it was that Gemini program that we used to to prove that we could do things like spend two weeks in space, which is how long it would take, like you said, to go to the moon and back. Yeah, and they, the Soviets were doing a lot of unmanned missions at the time, uh, or sending animals up there, data gathering stuff like that. Yes. There were a lot of animals sent to space that that perished. That never came back? No. That's or true. that came back in as fireballs. <laughs> it's sad. I went to this museum, um, Yumi and I did, in, in L.A. It's called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Yeah, I've heard of that. You should go. It is the most unique, peculiar museum you will ever go to in your life. But one of the exhibits is... A hall of portraits of Soviet space dogs. Oh, really? Pretty neat. Interesting. Yeah. And sad because they all ended up dead, huh? Yeah, it's uh, it's sad, but the tone of them more is uh, national pride. Gotcha. You know? Like these dogs gave their life for yeah. uh, the advancement of uh, humans. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. I mean, like if you if you step back and really think about it, these portraits are very much like human portraits. Like the dogs are like looking up, right? Uh, you know, into the future with their chin raised and like their their breast. You know, proud. Yeah, yeah. And, and if, yeah, that's the way they're done. It's neat. Well, what they're looking at is a, a dog treat. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt they're staring into space. But the effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty neat. I'm going to check that out. Oh, you need to go, man. Go with a child's heart. Well, I have no choice then. Okay. That's the only heart I have. Nice job. Uh, all right. So where were we? We're Project Gemini. We have a little bit of momentum. Mm-hmm. We... We have what it takes. We have the right stuff, if you will, right. to make it to the moon and to walk around up there. Uh, and that is when Apollo 1 caught fire, uh, which was a pretty big setback uh, in January of 1967. Yeah. I mean, like, not only did we lose, like, three of our great astronauts yeah. 
these guys were some of the originals. Um, I imagine that it scared the living daylights out of all the other astronauts. Sure. And all of the people in mission control and NASA and Americans. Like, uh, you know, this is, everybody knew it was dangerous, but now it was proven like it's deadly. So this is a deadly endeavor that we're undertaking here. Yeah, they they knew that. They knew how dangerous it was. Yeah. That's I, why all their wives were just, you know. No, no, I don't, I don't mean them. I mean more like the American public. Oh, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we're losing people now. These aren't like dogs. Yeah. Like these are three guys, you know? Yeah, totally. And people that America had grown to love, you know, like national heroes at this point. Right. Like the voice. <laughs> you got to quit saying that. <laughs> and so, uh, after the fire, actually, they disassembled the launch pads, but left the posts as a permanent memorial to oh, really? the Apollo 1 astronauts. Yeah. And rebuilt launch pads elsewhere? Yeah. Wow. Uh, all right. So at this point, the Soviets are uh, concentrating on, like I said, unmanned spacecraft. They're like, all right, you can go walk on the moon, but we're going to send, uh, we're going to orbit the moon at least. And we're going to develop some docking systems and um, seeing how long we can stay up there. Other David Blaine-esque feats of strength. Right. Which is kind of neat. Like at some point. Around 1967-68, the Soviets said, it's obvious the Americans are going to make it to the moon. We're not going to send a man to the moon right now within time to be first. Yeah. So let's pursue some other stuff that the Americans aren't doing. They're like, what's the big deal about the moon anyway? <laughs> right. And it turns out they're kind of right. Kind of. Um, but uh, hum- humanity as a whole benefited from that decision. Oh yeah. Because the, while the Americans were perfecting what the Americans were perfecting, things like space shuttles and that kind of stuff, things that came directly out of the Apollo program and the lunar landing and just that, that science, the Russians were, like you said, experimenting with things like docking systems, space stations. They ended up building the Mir. Yeah. And so after the- We had Skylab. Yeah, we had Skylab in the seventies, yeah. which if, again, go to the National Air and Space Museum. There's two. There's one at Dulles, and then there's one like on the mall in D.C. Yeah, I think and, I've seen that one. Th- yeah, it's like one. Of, it's one of the main Smithsonian museums. Yeah, they have like a model of Skylab that you can walk through. It's so seventies rific. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we were experimenting with space stations, but at the same time, it was very apparent after. Well, it wasn't the end of the Cold War. This is before the end of the Cold War, but after we won, after we landed on the moon. Yeah. Apparently. The Soviets and Americans said, hey, let's see if we can work together. And they actually did in a very symbolic, but also technically um, proficient manner, the Soyuz uh, Apollo mission of 1975. Yes, and we'll talk more about that right after this break. Man, that music, this got me fired up. I know. Wow. We already won even. Yeah. At least the first time. <laughs> uh, all right. So we left off. You were talking about the uh, the joint Apollo-Soyuz test project, um, which was a really big deal to get together on this. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised even back then that they had the foresight to work together, you know? Yeah, but I, I think- Because we still weren't like great friends as nation- in the early 70s. No, and space was still a huge question as to whether or not it it could or should or would be weaponized, too. Yeah, exactly. So for the two dominant superpowers on the planet to get together was a big deal. Yeah, and that happened in 1975. uh, They literally got together in space uh, when an Apollo craft carrying three of our astronauts 
hooked up and docked with the Soyuz spacecraft with two cosmonauts, and they spent a couple of days, uh, you know, working and probably getting to know one another. Yeah, maybe drinking vodka. Yeah, they're probably like, we're not so different. We yeah. like to go to space and get drunk. Exactly. <laughs> it's the best. Right. I like Tang. You like Tang. <laughs> right. Let's put some vodka in it. Exactly. <laughs> so that was a big deal. And um, at least from that, it, it proved that we could work together. Our space agencies could work together. And um, it led to this this age of cooperation that grew directly out of the rivalry. Yeah. Um, and like we said, the Russians were kind of paying attention to living for the duration in space. Yeah. The Americans' big thing was this. Space shuttle. Yeah. We basically had like some cars that we could drive to the moon or space and back. Yeah. Um, and we kind of put the two together. Um, the Russians had the Mir space station and in the nineties, their crews had worked in the eighties or nineties. I don't remember the, their crews, at least one crew had spent more than a year in space. Yeah. Which, that was huge. It's super huge because part of the goal with all of these is can we one day live in space? Right. Period. And so ultimately this led to this joint cooperation led to the International Space Station uh, in the 90s. Yep. And if you go up to the International Space Station, you're going to see Russians and you're going to see Americans. Yep. And they're all up there working together still. Oh, but Chuck, that is possibly changing. Yeah. I guess I should have said had been working together uh, nicely like good neighbors because is it Russia trying to like evict us now? Well, they're basically saying, like, hey, you guys can't get up there anymore because... <laughs> and we're not going to give you a ride. <laughs> no. Well, no, they will give us a ride, but it's $71 million a ride now. What? Yeah. Wow. And um, at the very least, it's humiliating that Americans are having to hitch a ride from Russians yeah. who are basically extorting money from us. So is this all at the root of it? Is it, like, just tensions between Putin and the U.S.? Yeah, it all came from the Ukraine stuff yeah. and the sanctions. One of the first Russians to be sanctioned was the head of the Russian space agency. So they were like, oh, really? Gotcha. You know that's that space station up there? Like, you guys are in trouble now. So I wonder, is it not going to be the International Space Station anymore? Uh, I think what Russia's basically saying is... Watch what happens when we stop giving you guys rides. Right. And then we say, you know what? Let's just let the space station fall out of orbit. Wow. We, Russia, will still have a space flight program, a human space flight program. You guys won't because the International Space Station is the only piece of human space flight equipment that the United States has because the space shuttle program was scrapped. Right. Wow. Uh, so the space shuttle was scrapped, like you said. <laughs> um Bush, before he left office, uh, sort of had a read, uh, a directive for NASA moving forward that is moot now because Obama scrapped a lot of it. Um, Bush wanted to go back to the moon, basically. And even some of the people within NASA said it's like Apollo on steroids. And do we really need to go back to the moon? Like, what can we gain from that at this point? So Obama scrapped it and redirected NASA's funding toward uh, more rocket technology research like how can we fire rockets farther and uh, can we refuel them in flight? And uh, not just for military, but maybe this stuff can be useful, uh, you know, in, in the space program as well. Right. So that is the current space program. But there's a new space race. Yeah. Um, Ish. China. Yeah. Has come along and very methodically and ploddingly uh, has followed 
and met its space goals. 2003 put its first uh, man in space. What do you say they were? Taikonauts? Taikonauts? Taikonauts. Taikonauts. Yeah. Yeah, one of the... um, I read an article about China's space race, and they said, so far, their space program, uh, program is roughly equivalent to the U.S. and Soviet space program circa mid-60s. I saw that too, yeah. So they're clearly behind, but apparently they are making a lot of headway in a short amount of time. Plus, they have the luxury of not having to invent items like microchips from scratch. Right. That people, the Russians and the so and the Americans in the space race had to do. Um, the fact is, though, if you if you read anything about China and its space ambitions... And the United States and the state of its current space program, uh, you basically find you're sitting around reminiscing about the golden days of Tang and Gus Grissom. <laughs> really? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, China's basically going to dominate space. They're poised to dominate space. They very cleverly have started a space, uh, station program. Yeah. That will come online. The same time that the ISS, the International Space Station, um, makes its fiery arc into the Pacific somewhere, I read. Oh, really? Yeah, the, the ISS is going to come down sometime after 2016, probably 2020. Wow. And the That's United States will have no presence in space any longer. China will be the only game in town with a space station. Yeah. And I, I feel like, I, I don't know that this is true, but I feel like, in something like space, space exploration, um, that's kind of something that you have to build on momentum. And once you right. lose momentum, yeah, yeah. you really are set back. Like all of these people who are working for NASA or who have been laid off recently and as they age out and retire and, yeah. and all of that cumulative knowledge and, and organizational memory is lost. Totally. So even if we come to, Ten years from now, five years from now, and say, "Whoa, we're we're a spacefaring nation. We need to get back out there. We've lost quite a bit already. Yeah. Not to mention in the ensuing five or ten years, where we start to lose exponentially more. Yeah, it takes a while to ramp that back up. And my my, I agree. My fear is this: that we're going to take our typical, or what's come to be our typical, kleptocrat uh, view of things, and just let private business handle it. We'll just let, you know, SpaceX handle it for America. Right. They're addicted to money, so they're in their pursuit of money, um, we'll benefit as a nation. Well, that hasn't necessarily worked out for us with, like, you know, housing markets and stock markets and dangerous chemicals and that kind of thing. So while I do think that the true space race right now is between private industry amongst itself and private industry and China, yeah. I don't think that as a nation, by sitting back and just leaving it to private industry and virtually withdrawing our federal dollars from space exploration, that the United States is going to benefit in any way, shape, or form. Well, yeah, especially when you hear Aston Kutcher is going up on Virgin Galactic. Yeah. How's that helping us? It's not. Angelina Jolie's up there, though. That's this, what, this that's what matters. You, doesn't it? I don't know. I mean, I think it's neat, but it's it's one of those private space travel f- for the super rich. It's just like another thing for the super rich, like owning a yacht. Like, how does that benefit me? That if you've got several hundred thousand dollars, right. you can take a suborbital flight, I know. which is basically like a tourist. You know, that's not 
that's not advancing. I don't think that's advancing no. our space uh, exploration at all. Just leave it to business. We'll see. And that's not to say that SpaceX or or any of the private space industries aren't working to do things beyond send movie stars and rich people to space. No, they're working to send the rest of us to space, too. It's just the rich people and movie stars are the ones who will have the money to hit that first price point. But surely they're doing down. other things, too, though, like research, or are they not? Uh, like, that's what I need to look into. I more. would imagine that probably most of the goals of uh, anything like SpaceX or any company like that is to, is to make money well, yeah, from sure. space. So I would guess mining, um, basically selling yeah. services to space agencies. Colonizing and uh, selling a moon condos. Sure. Like India, Iran. Um, these countries have space programs as well and are entering space themselves. SpaceX can go basically contract for them. Um, yeah, they're, they're doing stuff, but they're not doing stuff necessarily just for the pursuit of science. Right. Like for, for the U.S. even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got a couple of things before we finish. Let's do it. So there's some inventions that sometimes are mistakenly attributed to NASA, which aren't necessarily true, but are favorites in space. Yeah, Velcro is the one I've always heard. That's wrong. Is it? Myth? it yes. It was invented in the 1940s by a hiker who um, noticed that little burrs were stuck to his socks and wondered how they stuck. I've heard that story. Look closely. This is the true story. Look closely and saw that burrs have little hooks and the yeah. socks have little loops, and that gave rise to Velcro. And Velcro is used a lot by NASA, so it's often wrongfully attributed to NASA. All right. Uh, this is a fun game, since you you know this stuff. Okay. How about M&Ms? No. The popular candy that melts in your mouth and not in your hands. No. They also don't, like, squish around in space. The candy-coated shell mm -hmm. makes it great for space travel. But not invented for space. No. Uh, what about the joystick? Yes. Okay. That is the direct result of the space race and the space programs. What about GPS? Yeah. Okay. Because you can't spell... Global positioning satellite without... Positioning. Yeah. <laughs> without satellite. It's system, isn't it? GPS is system. Yeah, it uses satellites. Yeah. So we also have the space <laughs> race... You just watch that one. <laughs> we also have the space race to thank for satellite TV. Uh, what about um, smoke detectors in your home? Yes. Because of space program? Space, yeah. Um, what about Tang. So supposedly and, and, uh, the Dippin' Dots, the the freeze dried, the Dippin' Dots. I don't know, man. It's well, that, possible. That was supposed to be like the you know, the outer space ice cream. That's what the astronauts had. Supposedly, but I don't know if it was developed by NASA for them. Okay. Um, Tang, no, it was already around. Yeah. Freeze dried foods, uh, the freeze drying process was already around to freeze dry blood to yeah. save for later, um, but then NASA adopted it to start freeze drying food. So technically, you can thank NASA for freeze-dried food. Yeah, and while Tang was not invented by the space program, it was definitely um, heavily marketed as being tied to the space program. Yeah. And it was a big deal. Like, it was, like, people gave it to their kids because they thought it would make them... Go into space. Yeah, like, stronger and smarter. And Little like, astronaut. Yeah, pretty much. You got, what are, what are some other ones? I have one more for you. Have you ever heard, there's, like, this um, 
urban legend that the American space program and the Soviet space program both had this problem. Um, the Amer- the Americans, they needed to be able to write in space, but if you use a pen, oh, yeah. pens are function by gravity. Yeah, and if you're in pen. zero gravity, you can't use a pen. Yeah, Seinfeld had an astronaut pen. Right. Yeah. So supposedly that NASA spent millions of dollars in coming up with a zero G pen, while the Soviets had a much better idea. Pencil. Pencil. <laughs> Was that really? Yeah. Wow. So apparently that's an urban myth. Both programs used pencils to start, but the Apollo One fire showed that you don't want anything that's even remotely flammable, like a wooden pencil, yeah. aboard your spacecraft. Oh, uh, that makes sense too. Sure. So NASA started using mechanical pencils, which were a couple hundred dollars a piece, they were way overpaying for them. Um, and then a man by the name of Fisher, who owned Fisher Pen Company, used his own millions of dollars to create a pressure-functioning pen rather than gravity-functioning pen, a space pen, which he in turn sold to the U.S. space program and eventually the Soviet space program for just a few dollars each. So the millions of dollars space pen yeah. is a myth. You, that you, that's your Paul Harvey moment. Right. Uh, it's I, I like Sputnik moment. You know me, I like pencils. And hey, shout out to our buddy, David Reese, who wrote the quintessential books, How to Sharpen Pencils. Yeah. Book. Yeah. Not books. But if you want to know about sharpening pencils. That's the way to go. There is a book, and he will explain that. And he's a great, funny guy, then a friend. So Yeah, he's a good guy. I always like to plug that. He's got a new show coming out. Well, um, what? Nat Geo. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What's it about? It's called Going Deep with David Reese, where he... Each episode is like how to open a door, how to make ice, how to swat a fly, <laughs> nice. where he goes deep into the how-tos of very mundane tasks. Nicely done, Reese. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, you got anything else? I got nothing else. So if you want to know more about the space race, you can type space and race in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And if this fascinated you, you should go back and listen to our Was the Moon Landing a Hoax episode? Yep. Uh, and our episode, Did Reagan's Star Wars Program End the Cold War? Both of them excellent, excellent episodes we've done. And you can find them both at StuffYouShouldKnow.com slash podcasts slash archive. And we did a very uh, special television episode about the private space race. So one of our 10 TV episodes, Stuff You Should Know, featured John Hodgman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the gist of the episode is we are have been invited to do some uh, training for a private space flight. SpaceX. Yeah, it's SpaceX. Yeah. And it's a fun episode, so you can get that on iTunes and Google Play and Or Amazon you can Instant. stay up until 4 in the morning and watch it on site. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently they do show on late night, yeah. Oh, like regularly? Yeah. Oh, cool. For weirdos. I'll have to watch those. Uh, if you already said all that, yeah. I think it's time, buddy, for listener mail. Okay, I'm going to call this uh, breastfeeding from Becky. Hey, guys, I'm a newer fan. I'm so glad to found y'all. I discovered your shows while looking for ways to spend the vast amount of free time I have during my day now. Uh, my husband and I just had our first child, uh, Penelope. Do you have free time? Well, you know, raising a kid. Sure. Not free. I wouldn't call it free time. I agree. Um, I've discovered that breastfeeding is very time-consuming. Uh, I think she means while she's breastfeeding. There's not a lot else. Oh, I got you. Okay. I'm uh, basically forced to sit around for long stretches of time, unable to do anything besides think, read, or listen to podcasts. Uh, I feel as if our daughter is already leaps and bounds ahead of all the other four-month-olds out there. Uh, and this is a while ago, so she's even older than that. Wow. Uh, she's been educated about how meth and crack cocaine work, sign language, <laughs> human cannonballs, amputation, 
castration, diplomatic immunity, etc. Uh, the list is growing longer as we work through the archives. Made me wonder if you ever thought about doing a show on breastfeeding. I thought at first it would be a super weird experience, but I've come to really be fascinated by the process. And let's be honest, it's something with uh, which the vast majority of humans have had firsthand experience. So we didn't do breastfeeding, did we? No, we totally should, though. It's a great suggestion. That is a huge hornet's nest, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, let's step right into it. Let's do it. That's from Becky, uh, Breastfeeding Becky. Thank you, Becky. Thanks, Becky. Uh, if you want to suggest an episode, we are always up for that. We love great suggestions like Becky's. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can uh, join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, and last but not least, you can hang out with us at our home on the web, the coolest location on the internet. It's called StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 